Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Now, guys, let's just all finally admit it and just get it over with. NYC, despite the past year and a half, is still the best city in the world. No, no, no arguing. I said it. It's done. Let's just all move on. Today, I get to interview Reshma Patel, who is running for NYC Comptroller 2021. Now, I fully admit I didn't really know what a Comptroller did until now. And uh, yeah, they're pretty useful. They do a lot. Reshma explained to me why she was running. She talked to me about her previous experience working in the Comptroller's office in NYC during 9-11, by the way. She talks about her MIT days and her passion for politics and government, plus her passion for science and math. And she talks about her own immigration story from India when she was a kid. Reshma is fantastic. I really hope she wins this one. And I hope after listening to this interview with her, you guys will go out and support her as well. So please enjoy my interview with Reshma Patel. We are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age 7 through 14. And guys, my 7-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis, NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states and also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. Your story, you immigrated here with your parents from Gujarat. So you're my Gujarati sister. So I might bust out with some Gujarati. Not very, not very good, but I, I may bust out with it. Yeah, my Gujarati is pretty bad too, but yeah. Okay, good. So we're yeah, we're yeah. on an equal footing here. So you moved here with your parents. Uh, your dad got a chance to come to graduate school here. Yeah. So typical South Asian household, meaning mom and dad were strict on certain things, including education, dating, etc. Yeah, they were, I mean, they were definitely very education focused. Um, I think typical for people in our community, right? That it was um, always about uh, doing well. And um, because we grew up, I grew up in a town called Lowell, Massachusetts, about 45, um, you know, minutes uh, outside of Boston. And, you know, we would drive to Cambridge, Massachusetts on the weekends. And especially at that time, 
um, most of the Indian community organizations, you know, they would show films because it's, you know, there right. no theaters, but they would show it at the universities there. And so we would drive by Harvard and MIT. And that was like, you know, every weekend, the thing that my dad would say is someday you're going to go to school here, you know? So, Hey, it worked out because he did. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And my sister went to Harvard. So it really worked out for my parents. So your dad threw it out there, was like, it's just going to, you throw it out in the universe, it's going to happen. That stuff works. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you know, a lot, of, most all my guests are South Asian, obviously. Um, but I would say 80% of them kind of have the same story where parents expected, not expected, but were kind of pushing us towards doctor, lawyer, engineer paths. Was that kind of the same in your household? It, it was, and, and my sister ended up being a doctor. So obviously there's some, uh, you know, uh, uh, pressure and family or influence, I would say, right? Right, um, my, right. You know, my mom's best friend was a pediatrician who was our pediatrician. And she had inspired, I think, both of us to want to be a doctor. And at some point I thought that um, my dad's a chemical engineer and he would have liked to ha- have me be an engineer and hence the whole MIT, you know, uh, thing. Um, but I always was interested in government, economics, political science, and just world affairs, and this desire to want to change the world, which came from my parents, interestingly okay. enough, you know, despite that, because our conversations were always, you know, every evening we at the dinner table, we'd be watching the 6 p.m. news with Peter Jennings, and we would talk about world affairs and what was happening in the world, okay. and uh, and talk about politics and followed elections very closely. Um, and so even by the time I went to college, um, I thought that I would go into some kind of work doing economic development or government or even be a journalist. Um, I had been editor of my high school newspaper. Um, so those were my interests. But again, you know, as an Indian kid too, you know, was in the science fair and the math Olympiad and all of those kind of things and uh, still went that math and science route. Right, right. So I was going to ask you that actually, you know, as we get older, we can kind of look back and understand more and more what, what, what values, what, what personality traits, what lessons we've really learned from our parents. Yeah. And of course, look, that's a, a lot of stuff that we've learned, right? It's hard, it's hard yeah. to put into one sentence. But if you could, uh, what do you think was your biggest takeaway or learning lessons from each of your parents? I think the biggest lesson I've learned, um, and this is something that, you know, I, I have a nieces and nephews and I want to instill in them, is that always care about something bigger than yourself. Right. You know, and, and it's always about community and doing more. Yeah. And especially from, you know, the community we're from, where, you know, you help everybody else kind of bring them up with you. Right. Mentality. Which is what yeah. which is what your parents did. Right. They helped yes, to bring yeah. family over from India as well, which I feel like is a very common immigrant story. And it's kind of it's part of our culture, part of our yeah. blood. Right. Yes. Yeah. So then uh, you went to MIT because your dad made it happen. Yeah. <laughs> and and there you did economics, political science. You minored in South Asian studies. And but you were also part of the student government class president. So like you said, you had the mix of science and math, but also the political aspirations or you know community uh, connections that you wanted. Yeah. And then you, afterwards, you continued. You went into the finance world. I know Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. You're currently at er- Ergo. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Well, I'm currently just running a campaign for Comptroller. 
because okay. it's a full-time job. So I am, you know, not doing anything else right now. Um, but I was working with them. I was working as actually as a consultant, but really in a, like a CFO type of role, role. Uh, for, for the last uh, two years. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, you have a great mix of financial background along with experience in government and diverse communities. So you're running for comptroller. I mean, it makes sense, right? <laughs> you actually were an advisor to the NYC comptroller's office for almost a decade, which I didn't know. That's really cool. And uh, you were there during 9-11. Yes. I have to ask during 9-11, I can't imagine what you experienced. I guess the question is, what did, you, what did you see them able to do? How were they able to assist during this time? Yes. So I think perhaps I just need to explain also what the comptroller is, because I think that's like a most frequently asked question I get um, on the campaign trail. And so the comptroller is the CFO, like the CFO of New York City, uh, the chief auditor, the person who's supposed to hold this city accountable and has oversight of all 55 of the city's agency. And um, I worked as financial advisor to the city of New York, which meant that I worked with the comptroller's office very closely, but also the mayor's office of management and budget. Okay. And, you know, when 9-11 happened, it was, you know, even thinking about what 2001, right, because that's actually, we were doing remote work at that time, right? Because lower Manhattan was completely shattered, right? And um, my office at the time, I worked for a firm called Public Resources Advisory Group. And uh, we were about a block and a half away from uh, the World Trade Center. And so I couldn't go into my office for about six months. And uh, none of the city offices, which are all down near the World Trade Center site, were open. So we right. were trying to work remotely. People didn't, a lot of people didn't even have cell phones uh, back then. And you didn't yeah. have Zoom, you know, which... It's like crazy you know, to think about now. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. How how did how did we do that, right? Yeah. And also, you know, the lawyers that we worked with in um for the city, their offices were actually, you know, World Trade Center actually had a lot of offices of government offices in there and a lot of law firms in there. And all those papers were gone too because you didn't have even cloud drive, right? So I think the sheer logistics of recreating everything um was a problem and then you know, getting together remotely and having meetings in different places with everybody on the team. And the biggest problem was, you know, at that time, again, you know, with this pandemic happening, the numbers from 9-11 seemed small in terms of revenues lost. Um, but, you know, we needed, we had a billion dollar hole in a week in New York City, wow. right? And loss in revenues. And uh, what do we do? And the area that I was advising the city on is on capital borrowings and financings and how do we do it innovatively? Okay. And trying to figure, you know, trying to figure that out, and managing uh, the city is required to have a balanced budget, and so figuring out how they're going to make it all work. And then you had all the increased services that we needed to provide to people uh, because of what was happening in um, lower. I mean, it was you know at that time everything kind of south of Houston Street, you know, just was closed, and people were out of homes. You know, right. and you just had to figure all of that out. Yeah. Looking back, do you feel like you guys were able to accomplish all your the mission, the goals back then? Yes. I mean, it, you know, at that time, it was more of a crisis mode and what do we do type of thing. Right. And there are lots of areas, you know, I was involved in one part of it, which was trying to figure out how do we get the money, right? There are all these other people doing the relief work and even figuring out food distribution to people in those areas. And all of that, I've thought about so much more this past year because the pandemic was like 10 times more of that. Because at that point, we just had to figure out how to take care of people in lower Manhattan. And now it was everybody in this city. Um, and I would say, you know, in terms of 
financially, the city actually managed to recover quite well, right? right. And did, did amazingly well. And lower Manhattan has was booming, you know, until uh, last year. And we were able to accomplish a lot. I think longer term, when I think back at uh, some of the ways that we financed development in the city and uh, the ways we did it, you know, probably not enough attention was focused on affordable housing and making sure that we were uh, taking care of just a lot of basic needs of people in the city as we're trying to figure out how we make the city grow and who gets that economic growth. Um, We probably could have been thinking about equity in a different way. and, And that conversation has become much more prominent in the last few years and especially after the pandemic. Right. I'm sure Lots of learnings from that from that yeah. time. And I, I got to ask, I, I think it's an obvious answer, but I still want to ask it. You obviously have the the finance background, the, the working in government background. You've worked at the comptroller's office. Were you always looking to run for NYC comptroller or is this something that kind of happened organically throughout your journey? Um, so it happened organically. Um, as you mentioned, you know, was always interested in government. And, you know, when I was in college, uh, was involved in student government and actually was class president. So obviously there was this interest in doing that. Um, and at that time, I probably would have said, oh, yes, someday I'll run for office. And then I started working in banking and became involved in that life. And then, you know how you, as you get older, all of us, we get jaded, right? And I, I was like, oh, no, I'm definitely not going to be running for office. And I was happy with my life. Uh, comfortable. We get, yeah, we get yeah, comfortable, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I had a very comfortable life, right? And um, 2016 happened, and I saw that as an attack on women, on immigrants, on people of color. Um, and I, and, and any every election, I do get involved, and I would be involved in campaigns. But you know, starting in 2015, it was a very different type of election for me in terms of not just being that armchair person who is doing the, oh, I'm going to be involved in politics, but really being on the ground and organizing people and focusing on getting people out to vote. Because I realized one of the problems that we had, you know, a lot of the people at that time were saying, oh, well, what is government doing for me? You know, we need change. It's awful. And the reason why I never felt that way was because I voted in every single election. And when I had a problem, I called up my elected official. Right. to complain and get something done. And not yeah. enough Americans do that and not enough Americans participate. And our democracy cannot work unless everyone participates. And so- I feel like I'm definitely guilty of that. Like, you know, of yeah. course, voting in this and that. But um, I think 2016 lit a fire under our asses and we all need to do an extra step or two. Yeah. You know? And- Yeah. And so most of, you know, I and the reason why I was only working part time and as a consultant in the last four years is I really just I I couldn't think of anything else except for changing the way our system was, you know, I really focused a lot as a volunteer um, getting involved at the local community level. I serve on my community board. I'm the president of the Eleanor Roosevelt Democratic Club, which is helps people get on the ballot and gets the a vote out and a volunteer with the League of Women Voters, which got me to go into many different communities in New York City and talk to them about the importance of voting and registering them to vote. Um, and again, still wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to run for office. Right. And I, you know, um, but they say to get a woman to run, you have to ask her seven times. And uh, through all the different groups that I've been involved in, people like, oh, are you going to run? There's elections happening in New York City. And this was after the November election, the national election finished. And between Thanksgiving and New Year's, a couple of friends just called me every week and like, no, you're going to do this. And if it wasn't for 
uh, you know, a few uh, wonderful female friends who really just pushed me. They're like, no, we're going to make this happen. Right. And they made it happen. Why is that? Why is it seven times for women? You know, I don't know, but it, it's just, men will just say, okay, I'm going to run. And I mean, I think it goes with everything, right? I think that women in a workplace, you know, they always talk about not wanting, women won't negotiate for wages the same way men do. They don't speak up as much as men do. And it's that same way, right? The way we are probably cultured to not uh, have attention put on ourselves or thinking that we can't do something versus uh, when men think they can do something. Yeah. Right. I think it's, uh, you know, from my own experience is just, but I don't know if it's fear, but the whole idea of investing in yourself and and making making it happen for yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I think we question things a lot more versus men are like, yeah, sure. We're just going to do it, you know? Yeah. We're just smarter, I think. That's why. Yeah. Well, it's more, yeah, more risk analysis, I think, right? My right. whole thing was, oh right. my God, I can't fundraise. I can't do it, you know? And all of, all of those questions ask, and I think perhaps men don't ask those questions, yeah. Very much. So yeah, your your commitment to service is obvious. Like you mentioned, you're on boards and you're involved mm-hmm. in so many different organizations within so many communities. I was looking at the list. I was like, wow, I can't even like list all of this. This is great. This past year and a half, I have to imagine you're on the ground doing, you know, working with so many different communities. And, and I wonder if you could tell me what you have seen as the city's biggest success this past year and a half and the city's biggest failure. So I would start with the success because I feel the way we've done the vaccine distribution and we are ahead of schedule and it's been amazing um, in the way the city has rolled that out. And I think the fault lines and the problems that we had last year was in terms of response time originally when the pandemic started, right? Like this whole back and forth, people, political posturing that stopped us from closing at the right time. And also once we were closing, not giving the right information, you know, a lot of reasons why a lot of our small businesses and restaurants suffered is they had no idea who in the city to contact, what the rules were, and the rules were changing constantly. Right. You know, and this, I mean, eventually we just got used to the pandemic is just never ending, right? But the first few months is like, okay, when are we opening? What are we have, you know, what's happening? And had we coordinated that better, I think it would have really helped our small businesses, you know, many of whom have had to close. I think that having more support in terms of even uh, providing them with uh, short-term capital would have been helpful. Right. And I, th- and I think the other big issue was in this incredible need for people who lost their jobs, you know, like 90% of people in the service industry, right? And they, we had people who couldn't put food on the table. And there were parts of the city where yeah, we had food distribution and we had about 30% of food going to waste. Wow. Right. You know, and then there are parts of the city and I. Well, just because uh, people didn't know how to manage that. Right. Is that yeah. basically what it was? OK. Yeah. So it's a matter of logistics and supply chain management. Right. right. Because then there are parts of the city. Uh, Richmond Hill is an area which is a large Indo-Caribbean community. And um, one of the boards I serve on was a community development corporation called Chaya, which serves that community. And we don't do food distribution. That's not our work. Not your thing. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, we had to do it. And I remember asking the staff, well, why are we doing this? And they're like, because no one else is doing it there. Wow. 
right? Whereas I, in the parts of the city where I was already seeing food distribution, I was like, oh, that's interesting, right? Because in these right. neighborhoods, we have excess food and that's going to waste, right? right? So, I, I mean, we as we move forward, we really need, I mean, one of the things I think we need better coordination across all the agencies because it's, you know, over 300,000 people also work for the city of New York, right? So there's just a huge um, city government and then there's all these nonprofits doing the work, uh, but we really need to see in which areas the work is being done and which areas it's not. And in the pandemic, we just saw that you know, at such a amplified at so many levels. I think the food distribution is one area. Obviously, everyone saw the inequities in healthcare, right? right. If you were in my neighborhood, you didn't have a problem getting an ICU bed in the East Side right. of Manhattan, but you did in Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, you know. Lots of things came to light. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, in, in a way, my question saying, what was the biggest failure? It, it's, mm-hmm. I should reword that because I feel like, I mean, this pandemic was something we have never experienced. And so yes, yes. I think everything was new for everyone, you know, yes. all all agencies. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand the management logistics kept changing, but I I don't know how else any, all these cities could have done it, right? I think it was just kind of like learning day by day. You know, you work with so many communities. Is there Was there any one community you feel like was impacted the most and ignored the most? Or was it was it a variety of, of communities? It's a variety of communities. I mean, it is uh, black and la- Latino communities the most in terms right. of just numbers, and um, you know, I mean, you know, twice as likely to be have impacted in all ways, right? Not just the health impacts of the deaths due to COVID, but you know, like fifty three percent of black owned businesses lost half their revenues, but only like thirty seven percent of white owned businesses. Um, but it's all across like the Asian American community doesn't get as much focus. Right. But 44 percent of Asian American women in New York City have been out of a job for over six months right now. Oh, wow. That's uh, high. And yeah. And there are very high rates of um, COVID-19 in uh, the Asian community and business losses and particularly in the South Asian community. Right. But right. We, that wasn't talked about as much either. And I think that it was overlooked. It's time to raise our voices, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk about your platforms. So digital banking at NYC, which I know very little about. So I'm just going to ask you very basic questions. I mean, I went to your side, of course, and mm-hmm. you'd mentioned that over 13% of NYC households do not have a checking account. My first pre-K question to you is, how does that create a financial strain on these people? And then your campaign, take it to the bank, how does it solve it? Sure. So thanks for that question. I think it's an important thing. And a financial literacy is really important. And so I've, I've actually, I feel like I've learned from every crisis that we've had. So in 2008, right. I was at Lehman Brothers when the financial crisis happened. And what I realized at that time is how many people in our country don't understand finance and basic finance, like compounded interest. And, you know, I think people are just scared of it. <laughs> like, yeah. You yeah. know, just get like overwhelmed with it. We're all not yeah. math people. Something you, you we all need to understand, but don't want to take the time to do so. Yes. And it's scary, right, to talk about it and, and to think, you know, that you know, maybe you won't have enough money is also a fearful thought, too. Um, and one of the problems that so that's basic understanding, but also in certain areas in this city and around the country, right, where you don't have banking services available to people. And the less money you have, actually, the higher the fees are for a bank account. And what happens in a lot of places is you have these check cashing places, which will take a large percent of your check. And these are people who are relying on every paycheck to get by, right? And they're being taken advantage of. And so something like a a digital banking service um, 
which there are several of you know companies that have popped up who do this, you don't have any fees or you have very small fees in banking. And okay. it helps the poorest of the poor because if you don't even have an address, right, at home address, it's hard to open a bank account if you are you know, housing insecure. And we saw a lot of this this past year where a lot of people did have housing insecurity. You would still have that bank account. Most people now do have a smartphone, right? So they can access it from their phone. And you then would be able to, like stimulus payments, right? There was uh, almost 9 million Americans weren't able to get their stimulus payment because they didn't have a bank account to send it to. Being able to get that, you know, uh, EBT, which is, you know, for people who need help buying food, all of that, you could move to this app and be able to provide it to people who don't have access right now. Right. I think it's, you know, important and saves them money from going to more expensive ways of cashing something simple as a check. Which we all take for granted that all of us that have bank accounts, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and something you never think about. And then, in terms of small businesses, in again in minority communities, what we saw with the PPP loans is a lot of people weren't able to access these loans, and they weren't because they didn't have banking services. Oh, how frustrating! Yeah, and right before the pandemic started, through Chaya, I had actually gone to a meeting in uh, Jamaica, Queens, where the Congressional Financial Oversight Committee had come to visit. Because immigrant communities and primarily Asian American immigrant communities were facing what we call modern day redlining, which they were actually not being given loans or being charged higher interest rates for business loans and housing loans than their white counterparts. And then the pandemic happened and we were we thought we were going to address this issue. Maybe we would have legislation for it. But when the pandemic happens, all of these people who didn't have that banking relationship, when that first day when the PPP loans were available, they couldn't get them. And if you had that bank account with Bank of America, you were able to get the loan. And so that's why we heard stories about these kind of wealthier people who were able to get these PPP loans. And it was because of this lack of relationship with the right. banker that stopped a lot of small businesses from getting the loans. And so it's, you know, I think it's critical that we solve that problem. Right. Obviously, you're talking about it. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, that seems like an obvious solution, right? Like digital yeah. banking. So why has it not been implemented earlier? Like what took so long to get to this point? Um, and it's still very new. Like this is a okay. relatively new thing that, uh, you know, uh, in the last year people started thinking about it. And I think so what this pandemic did is this idea that a lot of people don't know that, I mean, people think of redlining was something that happened, you know, in 1968, we had legislation that made, I mean, I grew up with this thinking that I was growing up in a post-racial America, right? Where everything was equal. Of course. Yes. Right? We all we all did. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I think it's something that people didn't think about that this is what happens if you don't have that relationship, right? Then you're going to have something like this pandemic where certain people are going to be impacted so much more. Yeah. Right. You know, and so thinking about that and, oh, wait, here's a problem. Let's try to solve it now. And it, these were issues were I mean, there were definitely people on the ground. You know, as I said, I went to this hearing before the pandemic started, right, working on it, but it didn't gain as much attention at a larger level until right. the pandemic happened. So I think that's one. And then it's important to remember that there's vested interest, right? Um, with the check cashing, for instance, right? So we had the Consumer Protection Bureau, you know, that had been set up under the Obama administration, a key idea of Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and it got dismantled during the Trump administration. Right. So we were making progress against this, you know, uh, problem of people being charged too high fees in poor communities. Um, and then we backtracked on it because there's people who make money off of these things. 
right? right. And, and, you know, we after all do live in a capitalist society. And so there are vested interests who believe that we should be having uh, these ways of other people to be making money. Right. Man, I got to tell you, these past five, six, seven years have been just insanity. And okay. I am hoping that out of all of this insanity, we've all woken up to something we didn't realize. Yeah. Kind of cleansing the palate here and, and starting over again. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. The second platform, the Keep New York Parks Clean, of course, mm-hmm. makes sense. I didn't realize Central Park was the first park to be public landscaped in the entire United States. That's really cool. So a few things that are happening here, low income residents are more likely to lack access, right? To green spaces. There have been challenges with contracts that ultimately impact the park and the budget's being slashed. So how does the comptroller save the day? Yeah. So one of the things that New York, you know, when I decided to run for a comptroller in end of January, uh, things in New York, you know, we had about, you know, $2.5 billion loss in revenues and all these increased costs due to COVID. But since then, the American Rescue Plan, I mean, New York City is about to get $15 billion of aid from the federal government. So, so much of the problems that I was worried about in the short term are being solved because we're going to get that federal money. Like one of the proposals, uh, the mayor's budget came out at end of April. One of the proposals is getting, hiring 10,000 people for what's called a cleanup corps which will be, you know, more and more people use the parks. I myself, you know, never went for walks in the park. I was always just running around from one thing to the other. And then for a whole year, that's what I did, right? Like met friends and went for walks. Yeah. The trash has increased and we're going to be creating jobs uh, and solving that problem. But that money is coming from federal relief money. So we need to, now I see the challenges. Okay, how do we keep that program funded going forward? Right. right, because the trash is going to come back if we don't clean it up. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think the focus now with the controls office is going to be what do we do to make sure that we have longer term revenue sources to support a lot of these programs that we're going to be funding with the federal relief money. We need our green spaces in New York. <laughs> yes, for sure. We we cannot lose those. Those are the best parts. And then you know. This- you mentioned the New York Times reported one third of New York City's small businesses were likely not going to survive the pandemic. And six months later, still looks pretty grim. This year, early this year, New York Department of Labor reported that unemployment rates at NYC had fallen from 12.1% in November 2020 to 11.4% in December 2020. Tens of thousands of New York City residents have died. I mean, and this number is growing, right? So like yes. this... Oh, this past year and a half has killed us. And so how do we see the city thriving and surviving in this next couple of years? Are we going to bounce back? I, I am long term very sure that New York will bounce back. And um, one of the things that I feel, you know, New York, despite nothing happening last year, you know, in terms of so much of the city being closed, still proved to be the most interesting city in the world, I felt, because the way New Yorkers became super creative. Right. Like, performance art on the streets and the way we're using our park spaces. Uh, You know, we did have 630,000 people lost their jobs last year. And we are, you know, at this peak last summer, we had about 20% unemployment. We're down to about 11% now. We started to get back some of those jobs, but we really do need to focus on new job creation. Right. Uh, The federal aid is going to help us considerably to get out of this, but we need to figure out how to manage it well. And I think in the short term, we're going to do very well as New York City is reopening. I mean, I see it already this week with 
the official reopening. You know, so many places that had shut and I wasn't sure if they're going to come back have started to reopen in right. my neighborhood. It's yeah. exciting. We're yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there are longer term structural issues that we need to focus on. That, and then the right. biggest thing is to make sure that we have the revenues going forward and we keep costs low. Again, giving the size of the city and stuff, oftentimes the inefficiency and the ability to innovate is hindered and making sure that we're managing costs at a time when we could have potential uh, revenue losses. I have to ask you this as well. Obviously, you probably know Reshma. So, Johnny, do you have any thoughts on the Marshall Plan for Moms? Um, yes, yeah, so I do know her. And I, I mean, I think it's great. I think women have been disproportionately impacted, you know, by uh, this work from home situation because, you know, they had to be doing both work that they're supposed to do and also taking care of children. And it's been difficult. And as I mentioned, the stats of women, you know, almost all employment in the month of December, I mean, everyone saw that headline was with women and women's participation in the workforce is at a 40 year low in this country. I know. I was when I was reading that when I yeah. read a bunch of her her articles. I'm like, that's that's insane. That's like we went yeah. backwards sixty years or something. In terms of, you know, women who work in you know, the service industry is often women, right? People right. working in restaurants and women uh, of color too, right? Yeah, women of color, nail salons. You know, I mean, one of the reasons why you see uh, so much unemployment with women is because they were doing this these service industry jobs, right? right. That just haven't come back. And focusing on how do we provide support for them. Right. And one of the great things that New York City, and this is something that I was worried that we wouldn't get funded and wanted to focus on. But now with the federal aid, we are going to have universal 3K. So okay. you know, we already have universal pre-K in New York City, universal 3K, you know, so making sure all kids in New York have that. And it's great for them in terms of education for the children and having that opportunity for every child in our city, but also great for women who are in the workforce and right. that, that extra support for children. I mean, but, it's so key. Yeah. It's so key, right? I think you just maybe recently posted something on LinkedIn and, and everywhere else about, about fundraising. Yes. Um, and so I got to ask, as someone who knows nothing about fundraising, when you're raising funds for your campaign, where do these funds go? How do you allocate these funds? Uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because actually nobody really does. And I always, you know, I, I feel like asking for money is always hard and it's been a hard for me. And, I'm um, sure. Yeah. I, you know, and, uh, and kind of asking in a very short time period too, you know, for trying to raise a lot of money. Look, it's, it's never yeah. the fun part of it. Like, you know, yeah, no one really wants to ask for money. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I right. have a hard time asking people who borrowed money from me for money, you know? Right. And so, and, I, have yeah. a, I have a hard time asking people to sign up for my newsletter. So yeah. like, I, can't, I can't even, so I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so campaigns, you know, I, I, what I, and I believe this long before I was running for office, if American democracy was a direct to consumer startup business, nobody would invest in it because it is way too expensive customer acquisition costs. Again, it goes back to this idea that people don't pay attention to politics and don't vote. So then when an election comes up, we have to spend so much money trying to do outreach to get people out to vote. Right. And so most of that money goes to advertising. And in New York, especially, it's an expensive advertising market, right? Everywhere else, you would have a small local station. But here you're competing with big TV stations, the biggest newspaper, New York Times, and it's expensive uh, to in, uh, to get, do advertising. So most of that money goes to advertising. Uh, you're paying staff. You have campaign staff who, uh, you know, are out there in the field getting out the vote for you. You're paying people uh, to manage social media, all, all those kind of things. It's, I mean, uh, running, a, yeah, running an election is like running a startup. Right. You know, you have right. all the different pieces and also the whole branding is important. All of that. 
Yeah, it's important. But yeah, it is. It, it, so much of the money goes to advertising. It's advertising, marketing, all your Instagram stuff. I'm doing a podcast and I'm overwhelmed <laughs> with all this stuff. So I can't even imagine running a campaign. How many people yeah. are on your campaign right now helping you out? Yeah. So I, you know, my team is actually pretty small. First time candidate, not that much money. So I have about six core people. That okay. Are. And this is just because I'm just curious and I have no idea. Do you have to raise a certain amount of money to even run for comptroller? Yeah. So in New York City, one of the good government policies that New York City has implemented is public financing of campaigns. So they have very okay. strict campaign finance laws. And what they do is they match every dollar that's raised from a New York City resident gets matched eight times. And oh, that gives, yes. And so, yes. I think I heard this from, is it Andrew Yang? Oh yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I heard an interview with him, and he, yeah. he mentioned that as well. Yeah, so. and so that gives everybody a level level playing field. And again, someone like myself, who's the first time candidate, who may not have the resources, uh, say of a you know someone like a Ray McGuire who has personal wealth, or a Michael Bloomberg doesn't need that help, right? They have some money. Yeah, they have some money. You know, uh, so you have eight times matching uh, that you get from the city. But to qualify for a citywide race. For the comptroller, we have to raise at least $125,000 from New York City voters. That's a a lot. Yeah. uh, And the donations have to be $250 or less. So they really want to encourage small dollar donations and they want to encourage everybody to be involved in their elected officials. So that way, no one person, right, is going to be able to say, like, the problem we have in our federal government is about 132 people are the biggest contributors to our political campaigns. So that one person who wrote that big check can go to our elected official, be like, you need to do this for me. Right? That's no bueno. Um, yeah. Right? Right. Whereas in New York City, that's become harder to do because of this public financing of campaigns. You keep the special interest out. Uh, corporations cannot donate to these campaigns. Uh, but getting to, to, I mean, for Comptroller, you have to have raised 125000 Um, It's two fifty for the mayoral race. So for Andrew Yang, you know, it was double uh, what I had to raise. Uh, so you know, they have a threshold, which makes sense because this is taxpayer money that they're giving you. So they want to make sure that you can do it. Um, And so I, you know, fingers crossed, I think I've made the 125 and I have the money now, which is that post you probably saw on LinkedIn last week because I was getting very close. That's good. Well, I want people to listen to that are listening to understand why they should donate. If they are donating, donating, where is it going? Uh, I think that's like the number one question, right? Donating the campaign. So I'm glad we uh, talked about that. So the one thing I will add to that, though, to run a New York City campaign, a citywide campaign, it usually takes between two to four million dollars. How do you even like raise that as a normal person? (laughs) Yeah. So but with the eight times matching. So if I qualify, my hundred and twenty five thousand dollars will become a million dollars. Right, which is still which is still less, but I believe I, I mean it's a month left election, and I can do that with a million dollars, right? I you know everybody else who's been in the race, uh, who is already you know there's five people who are elected officials who've been running, they have raised at that four million dollar level because right. they've been doing this for a long time, and at the mayoral level, it's I think the most I mean it's like the most seven point seven million has been spent by Ray McGuire, and so. The more one person spends, that limit becomes more, like how much everyone else needs to spend. It just, yeah, one-ups one everything. And yeah, one-ups everything. And, and, yeah. and with so many people running for mayor this election cycle, um, this is going to end up being one of the most expensive, you know, citywide elections in the history of New York City. Everyone's ready to make stuff happen. Yeah. After, after everything we've all been through. So, I mean, it's kind of exciting. I think it's great. Yeah, you know? yeah. I got to ask kind of a soulful question. 
you've been here for so long, the city has, you know, shaped basically your, your personal professional mm-hmm. journey. What does NYC mean to you? Oh, I mean, I, I love this city. I mean, I've chosen uh, to live here for so long and um, very important decisions in my life. I have been like, oh, you know, it's, it's not in New York City. I can't do it. Right. So for me, what New York City is, is, you know, I love it because of the diversity. Right. And I can get on a subway train and feel like I'm in a different part of the world. And especially and I, I you know, I've been living here for so long and I've been somebody who's been adventurous and explored lots of the city and done volunteer work in so many parts of the city. But running for Comptroller has given me a whole new perspective because I've gone to parts of the city that I still had never been to and met so many different communities of people. And it's just been amazing. And the diversity, it's diversity, but the people who come here with such big dreams, right? right? Whether they're people from other parts of our country who have amazing creative talent or amazing ideas for something or people from around the world. And we really do get the best and the brightest of people coming with big dreams here. Right. I think uh, one word that comes to mind, I, I lived in the city in my 20s and you know, yeah. obviously I'm, I'm in the burbs now, but I get to, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to be able to come in whenever. I, I feel like one word that always resonates with me is energy. Yeah. That this, the energy of the city is like, you can't match it with any, any other city, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. So I'm going to end this mm-hmm. with a little fast round, mm-hmm. you know, fun questions to get to know you, whatever comes to mind. What is the best compliment you have ever received? Best compliment I've ever received would be, you, you know, people who have said, especially uh, this past um, few months, people called me up and said, how can I help you? Because you helped me when I needed you. And I didn't actually remember that or even realize I'd helped them. How would your parents describe what you do for a living? They'll say she doesn't have focus. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, like my parents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they must be excited that you're doing, you're running, right? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, so, they're so excited. And, you know, I mean, if my dad hadn't shaken down every Gujarati uncle, I may not have made this 125 <laughs> match, you know. Like, literally, it, my donor list is going to be all these Patels and Shahs from Queens, you know. <laughs> hey, Patels, you guys don't mess around. You guys come yeah. in numbers and support each other. Yeah. Well done. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. If you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would they be? So Shirley Chisholm, who was you know, a, a congresswoman from Brooklyn, but also the first woman to run for president and, you know, a black woman. And she, her slogan was unbossed and unbought. And I love that. And I uh, had the pleasure, uh, you know, many years ago, I mean, she passed away now, but in the early 2000s, having been at an event in New York City where she was. But if I could have had dinner with her and just gotten her input, it would be wonderful. Eleanor Roosevelt, another person, and especially given my involvement with a club that's named after her. But I really think that she was a visionary in terms of what types of services people in this city needed uh, in terms of the labor movement. And with her was a woman named Frances Perkins, who was our first secretary of labor, I mean, first female secretary of labor under FDR. And they really changed the social fabric of the city in terms of making sure that people had support at, at a time where, you know, you're coming out of the Great Depression. And I think that we need more people like that. You know, I'm going to add something fun. Uh, I'm going to say Hindi film star Amitabh Bachchan. Woohoo! I was like, is yeah. any Bollywood people are mixing up in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say that and because, one, I was a fan as a child and watching those films had given me a connection to India and learning Hindi and loving a lot of the music and stuff. But it has come in handy during, again, elections in New York City. You really 
culture is important and knowing communities. And um, I've been going to mosques, gurdwaras and places like that. And the way I know what I'm supposed to do in these situations is because I'm thinking about the films, right? Like, oh yeah, this mosque scene, I'm supposed to say, you know, like, totally. so I'm supposed to do this, right? Um, and so that cultural reference helped me. And then uh, he as a person and just the fact that in such a long career has been able to do so many different things, right? And right. to be able to keep going at that age, um, right. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. What, what would you pick for your last meal? So there is a Burmese dish called khao soy, which I really like, which is incredibly hard to find. And I, yeah, that would be, you know, it's uh, it, in, whenever I land in Bombay, that's the first dish I eat because it's actually really easily found in India at a lot of places. Really? So, yeah. I've never had it. Yeah, there's a place in Bombay called Busaba in Canberra. Yeah, yeah. And so they have it there and I I love it. Yeah. Okay. Got to check it out. Well, whenever we can go back to India. Yeah, exactly. Well, in San Francisco, their um, Burma Superstar has a good one. There's lots of Burmese restaurants in San Francisco. I mean, the one thing that New York City is missing is it doesn't have so many Burmese restaurants. That's shocking. I I feel like New York has everything. Huh. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's it's unusual. It's like the one cuisine. And I think I am somebody who likes things that are in scarcity, I feel like, because I like yeah. something that I have to go search for and find. That's awesome. If you could have a billboard for free forever with anything on it, what would it be and why? Believe in something bigger than yourself. That motto that I feel I've taken from my family. Right. Love it. Yeah. All right. Last question. When me and you meet for drinks, which we will at some point in New York City, what bar or restaurant are you taking me to? There's so many wonderful places and so many uh, places that have been shut. That And I've been too busy campaigning. I actually haven't really been out. Right. Uh, well, it's been so long. And also I have you know, also become a person. I eat super healthy salads and like clean living and same, stuff like that. So, same. same. Right. So uh, choosing where is fun versus, okay, what is the healthiest meal for me is also, you know, um, but I'm going to say, you know, I want to try this restaurant that I actually haven't been able to go to. Um, It's called Damaka, which is a new Indian restaurant. restaurant, And I had done a panel on uh, how restaurants can recover for my campaign. And Wani Mazumdar, who is uh, the owner of that had spoken. And since then, several of my friends who were at that event have gone to his restaurant. And literally this week, I've gotten three photos saying, oh, I'm here. And I said hi to him for you. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go and try this place. We'll have to make it happen. I kind of feel like she was born to be Comptroller. Guys, go check out her site, reshma2021.com. R-E-S-H-M-A 2021.com. All the information's on there, everything about her, her platform, and go support her if this girl knows what she's doing. As always, you can follow me at Tucker.podcast, Tucker.withami.com. And please write your name in the little box on my website so I can start sending you newsletters. I have like 10 more people that got added last week. So maybe I should, you know, make you guys do more things. Thank you guys for listening. It's almost the end of May and I'm headed to LA next week. I might be doing an episode from there or, you know, resting on the beach and unplugging. Either way, love you guys. This is Tuckered Out. Out.